your mercy and grace. We thank you that we know that mercy and grace supremely in your son Jesus. And we come to you in him this morning and by your spirit. And we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word today. I pray that the word that is preached today would have the effect that was intended by the spirit when he first inspired this text to be written by the human author. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 924 years ago, this month, November 1095 A.D., at the Council of Claremont in southern France, Pope Urban II urged Western Christians to take up arms to take back the Holy Land from Muslim control. This marked the beginning of the Crusades. In all, there were eight major Crusades extending from the years 1096 to 1291 A.D. But when the Pope pushed that first crusade, it would have been impossible. He couldn't have imagined the slaughter that would happen in the city of Jerusalem just four years later in 1099, or the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church when this very pope started the indulgence system, the selling of indulgences in order to finance the Crusades. But as heinous and as corrupt as the Crusades were, intramural battles have their own unique horror about them. For instance, our own national civil war. It had its distinctive atrocities. Brothers fighting against brothers. And historians say that the greatest atrocity that occurred during the civil war happened at Fort Pillow, Tennessee, just north of Memphis, on April the 12th, 1864. What you have there is Commander Nathan Bedford Forrest and his confederates who massacred some 300 Union soldiers who had already surrendered. Now, as a side, you might know that name, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, he became the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. And interestingly, uh, of those 300 soldiers that they massacred, two-thirds of them were black soldiers. But atrocity, Civil War atrocity... And certainly the, the Crusades, along with national civil wars, are grievous. Uh, but I'd submit to you that the kind of war that most eclipses the glory of God and an accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ and His cross and His resurrection are wars within the people of God. From 2 Samuel 2, verses 12, all the way through chapter 4, we have a tale as old as time. Or we might better say, a tale as old as the fall itself of people who attempt to have an influence on the kingdom of God by their own carnal efforts and means. So some seek to hasten it. Some seek to thwart it 
and others seek to use the kingdom of God for their own ambitions. The result is always the sword, or at least metaphorically the sword. Of course, last time we saw that David had been appointed rightly the king over Judah, but Abner had appointed Ishbosheth to be the king over all the rest of Israel, which was an antichrist act, David being the anointed one at this time. And now things are progressing. And the first thing we see in this passage is the warring sides and the sword at Gibeon. Notice with me in verse 12. I'm actually in 1 Samuel 1. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maonaim to Gibeon. Now, a simple statement, but it's clear here that the aggressor in this conflict is Abner. He began it all, actually, when he sought to appoint Ishbosheth to be king. Now, the reason for Abner's mission here to Gibeon is not known. Uh, regardless of why, it's clear that he expects conflict. Because as we're going to see, he has hundreds of armed troops there at his disposal. And we must, we must not lose sight of the fact here that this is an extraordinarily evil act. Now, now why would I say that? Besides the fact it's an act against the anointed king, that's the biggest issue. But to move his forces as aggressors towards David at a time when the Philistines still threatened all of Israel is a very selfish and evil act. And that's an underemphasized consequence of division within the people of God. Because it then forces you to turn your energies and efforts and resources inwardly to, to put out house fires when there are greater foes, when there are, uh, is a more important mission to undertake. Well, David's crew in Hebron got word of Abner's move. And notice in verse 13, And Joab, the son of Zeruah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Now we're going to learn Joash is David's nephew. He's the son of Zeruah. Now we know Zeruah is David's sister. We learned that even though she's not mentioned elsewhere in 1 Samuel. She is David's sister. We learned that in 1 Chronicles 2. Now, he's already been mentioned just briefly in chapter 26, but this is the first appearance for Joab as a central figure in the Davidic narrative. He's not going away. For the rest of David's reign, he is never far from the action. Let's just say he's zealous. And in here, the advance of Joab, I believe, was simply a rational, defensive move. It was just rational for him to do that. He's, he's got to defend what's being compromised. But I do find it interesting that David's not mentioned here. David is not getting involved in this bruja, uh, and I think it's likely because he recognizes that if he gets involved in this bloody skirmish 
against the majority of Israel is going to have a, a major effect on his, his future reign. But I also think that there is a picture here of a wise leader. Whereas many hot-tempered leaders are very quick to enter the fray, we see one here, a wise one, who follows the rule of Jesus' seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, here at the pool at Gibeon, it's kind of a standoff that results. And Joab here refuses to allow Abner's forces to advance any further. But the impasse doesn't last long. It's about to be broken. Conflict, when left unrepented of, always escalates. We're going to see that. And we see it here. Uh, notice in verse 14. And Abner said to Joab, again, Abner is the commander-in-chief, if you will, of Ishbosheth, who is now the king of all the other tribes. David is the king of Judah. Right? We saw that last time. And so Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us, some kind of competition. And Joab said, Let them arise. And then they arose, passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin, and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. I believe the twelve is intentional. So you got the twelve who represent Abner's group and Ishbosheth. You have the twelve who represents David's group, Judah. Because I believe the issue here is on who will be king. The issue is at stake is who will rule over Israel. Notice in verse 16. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side so they fell down together. So there's 12 battles taking place. 12 against 12. Each fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. So it ends as quickly as it started. And all 24 died. And the site is given the name Helkath Hazarim. You may have a footnote in your Bible. It's variously translated, the field of the hostilities, the field of the sword edges, the field of the flints. And what a horrific name for a place. And even though Abner and Israel were, were beaten here, there's really no victory in strife among the people who bear the name of God. There's no victory that comes with that. But this also reminds us, this is very important, that Psalm 2 was and is and will always be true. Psalm 2 tells us, and we need to remember this in a climate where the world, at least the western hemisphere, southern hemisphere, there's a great move of God taking place, but in the western hemisphere where it seems like the world is going to pot and becoming increasingly secularized, we have all the hope in the world. Psalm 2, why do the peoples plot in vain against the Lord 
and against his anointed, he who sits in the heavens laughs. If you want to make God laugh, plot against his anointed. Of course, his anointed at this point is David and those who are in union with David. And that brings us to the second section of this, this passage, the warring sides and the sword in Benjaminite territory. Now notice with me in verse 18. And the three sons of Zeruah were there. They've gone and gotten these boys all worked up. Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Azahel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. Now again, Zeruah is David's sister. We learned that from 1 Chronicles 2. So these three boys are David's nephews. His father's name's not mentioned, but we learn later in the text, verse 32, that his father is buried in the town of Bethlehem. It's likely that he's not mentioned because maybe he's already dead. He's dead at this point. Of course he is. It tells, the text tells us that maybe he died when they were really young. But what's featured here is David's sister. And these three boys, Joab, Azahel, and Abishai, will prove to be very loyal to David. Uh, to a fault. We've already seen Abishai. He went with David down to, to deal with Saul in 1 Samuel 26. And he wanted to strike Saul with one strike of the sword. He told David, it won't take two strikes. One will be enough. Uh, th that's the kind of zeal this, this fellow had. And we're going to see here, As Azahel has no less zeal. He's fast as a gazelle. He's being featured here. Notice verse 19. And Azahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. That, that is language to speak of utter commitment, singleness of purpose, zeal, devotion. But it's language that you see even that we're to, to have of the Word of God in other places. In verse 20, Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left. Seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Azahel wasn't there for spoil. He was there for Abner. Why was he there for Abner? Because his zeal for David. His, his zeal for his uncle. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. And, Ab but, and Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? A much more seasoned uh, warrior than Azahel. And it's likely that he was, Azahel was not armed. He had been fleeing after uh, Abner. And so it's likely that he's not armed. How then, he says, could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? No love here. He's just concerned with the pragmatic consequences. It would affect his relationship with his, his peer, who is Joab. But don't be mesmerized by this kind act here. Um, he's deeply at fault. Uh, rabble riser, rousers are master manipulators. 
They're, they have PhDs in manipulation. He started this. Verse 23, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. Again, more unnecessary fallout. The death of David's nephew. And everyone knew at this point that the conflict has moved to a, a higher stratosphere. It's about to get really ugly within the people of God. Conflicts always do if left unchecked. They always do. In fact, Southern Baptist's most strategic church planning strategy has been church, plan, uh, or church splits. Unfortunately, that's how it's happened. And in this case, the escalation led everyone to stand still in their tracks, just completely sobered by what they saw. That's David's nephew. And someone just stuck a butt of a weapon all the way through this fellow. Everyone stood still, except two. And that brings us to the third part of this text, the warring sides and the sword at Emma, verses 24 to 28. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Emma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people... Of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner, notice, and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. So they're, they're in this strategic position on the top of a hill. And then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So Abner asks three central questions in verse 26. And the answer to all three questions are very sobering. Let me repeat those. Shall the sword devour it forever? Do you not know the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? The third question and answer may be the most sobering of all. He is essentially saying or asking, Joab, this is a family conflict. Brother against brother, how long will you allow it to go on? Now, Abner's question challenged Joab to consider the high price of a civil war within the people of God. Having said that, this virtuous-sounding speech had one problem that Joab would have clearly recognized. Abner is laying the blame for the problem at the feet of Joab. And 
we recognize it's Abner and his aggression that is behind all of these problems. It started the whole mess. The blind spots of rabble-rousers are generally notorious. Keep that in mind. When there are rabble-rousers within a group, their blind spots are fundamentally notorious. You see it in marriages. You'll do counseling, and, and one person creates chaos everywhere he or she goes, and he or she believes other people are the problem. You see it also in churches. But in spite of that, for a short time, Joab concedes to Abner's words. Notice in verse 27. And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. Again, note the word brother. We see it in verse 26. How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And now here, surely the men would not have given up pursuit of their brothers. This reminds us this is not a conflict with the Philistines. This is not a conflict with the Amalekites or Nahash and the Ammonites. This is an internal fight, the ugliest of fights and conflicts. And Joab's response, I think, is primarily pragmatic. He sees Abner's superior position on the hill, and he recognized that many lives would be lost, so he calls it off for just a moment. We'll see in the next chapter, he's going to get his vengeance. He's going to bide his time. And that brings us to the final section, and then we're going to close out with some very important points on conflict. In the last section, we see the warring sides and the fallout from the sword. Verse 29, Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Manam. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Azahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Azahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So they go back to the home base of David. The text closes with them back in Hebron, but only after they took Azahel, Joab's brother, and they buried him in his ancestral home in Bethlehem. This is such a dark text. It's a very difficult text. Topical preachers are not going to preach this passage. It's a dark text, but it's also a critical text because it's an example of countless examples of sinners attempting to resolve kingdom issues by carnal, fleshly means. But not one person in this text is good 
wise are powerful enough to accomplish the kingdom in. And the fallout from this civil war teaches us a few things that I think we need to consider from this passage that we need to heed. As our church grows, as we seek to carry out the Great Commission, there will be conflict, inevitably. There will be spiritual warfare. And so this is much a vaccination message as it is an antibiotic message. We prayerfully vaccinate ourselves from unnecessary conflict and warfare by seeing the fallout of what happens when God's people turn on themselves with the sword. And then the scripture does serve as both an antibiotic and a vaccination. Think about the difference between the two. The vaccination protects you from disease. The antibiotic has to deal with existing infection. And so we want to use this primarily as a vaccination here. First of all, there's a time to divide. Now you, you might find that surprising to hear. But there is a time to divide. Only if doctrine in accordance with the gospel is at stake. All right? Only if doctrine in accordance with the gospel is at stake, that's a kingdom issue. And that is a reason to divide. And here, there was an assault on the kingdom of God. Abner is assaulting the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God at this moment is expressed through the reign of the anointed one, King David. So in this case, there can be no unity. There can be no unity because of this antichrist force coming against the kingdom of God. In this case, there's a time to divide. Second, but in our defense of the truth, we must not employ carnal means that could cause unnecessary damage. In other words, Joab and Azahel. We must not use carnal means in our defense of the truth. Third, the message of reconciliation rings hollow by people who cannot get along with each other. The message of reconciliation rings hollow with people who cannot get along with each other. Let's not forget, now this is very important to understand in the Old Testament. Israel was redeemed and birthed by God as a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19. And therefore, as a kingdom of priests, their function was to make God's ways known to the nations. It's one of the rules, their roles. Israel was to display to the rest of the world within its covenant community the kind of relationships first to God and then with one another that God intended originally for his image bearers. They were to display that within their own covenant community. 
since Israel was located, and his, the location of Israel is very important here, geographically, their location was on the only communication link between the superpowers of the ancient world. The two superpowers being Egypt and Mesopotamia. And, and so, in this position, as that central place where all the superpowers would have to to actually travel through in this position, they were to show the nations how to treat each other in a truly human way. That's a critical function of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. They were to be a blessing to the nations. That's the Abrahamic Covenant. And a divided kingdom cannot and does not do that. A divided people cannot and does not do that. Likewise, no church that seeks to honor Jesus Christ or heed apostolic instruction can fail to make the pursuit of genuine unity an urgent priority. As we read this morning in Ephesians 4, as a prisoner for the Lord, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. Make every effort, it's a command, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why is Paul saying that? Well, in Ephesians 1, Paul has established that Christ has brought under, everything underneath his feet through his resurrection. He is summing up all things in Jesus Christ. And now the church gathered is to signal that victory. He himself is our peace who has made the two one new man, Ephesians 2. And now we signal that to a watching world, just like Israel signaled it to the ancient world. We are to signal that Christ has emerged victorious. Look at our unity. We may not have a whole lot in common, but we have Jesus in common, and he is sufficient. And that is vital. Fourth, the battle of Gibeon shows us how challenging it is to restrain destructive passions and emotions in times of conflict. Once they get started, they become very difficult to restrain. Thursday night was a case in point. This is not exactly the church, but it's an example. On Thursday night, there was a football game between the Browns and the Steelers and Miles Garrett got angry with the quarterback for the Steelers, Mason Rudolph. And he pulls off his helmet and then he hits Rudolph over the head with his helmet. I've never seen anything like that. I, and I saw in Alabama one day a lineman pull the face mask off the helmet of a defensive lineman and he's there with a helmet without a face mask. That was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. This wasn't funny. It wasn't funny at all. But as horrific as that is, it happens in churches all the time. Except the weapon is more dangerous than a helmet. It's the tongue. That's a much more dangerous weapon than any 
physical weapon. Fifth, given the passions of sinners, and we're all sinners, even though our identity as believers is in Christ, we live in the already but the not yet, correct? Given the passions of sinners, it, hop, it often happens that divisions escalate to greater heights than originally ever conceived, than originally ever envisioned. And so, emotions and passions get involved. And the next thing you know, those passions, unless repented of, died to, they get fueled. It's like, it's like in the ocean during hurricane season. Those winds just get fueled by the warm, the warm air, the warm water. And next thing you know, you have a hurricane. Sixth, once started, conflicts and divisions are not easily brought to an end. Once started, conflicts and divisions are not... I'm just getting this from the text. We see that here. It's just continuing to escalate. It's going to get worse. We're going to see that in chapter 3. As Abner asked the question that we should all meditate upon, Abner here, though not being completely genuine, asked the genuine question. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? And that's why we have no choice but to oppose divisiveness within the church. And that's not just the elders' call. That is our call as the body of Christ. You look in the book of 2 Corinthians, the church at large... The local church at large was involved in church discipline. We are responsible to carry out church discipline at the micro level so it does not have to proceed at the macro level. That's why Paul would say some really strong words here in Titus 3. Listen to these words. As for a person who stirs up division. Now, we've all been guilty of that. So you go to a person, you, you, you plant seeds of doubt or suspicion about another person. It's, it, it's wicked, and you're going to see that. But he's talking about those, this is their pattern. This is what they do. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Those are strong words. Why would Paul, is Paul mean? No, Paul loves the church. That's what it is. And the reason he loves the church is he loves Jesus, who died for the church. Because this kind of stuff will create chaos. And then notice what he says. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, when we think of warped and, and sinful, we think of people that do, do hard drugs and, you know, commit all kinds of sexual deviancy. That may be the case. Paul is talking about divisive people. So let's remember this. I've been guilty of it. We all have. As a, as a pattern, we don't do that as Christians. 
But when we're doing it, remember that that act, Paul says, is warped and sinful. So when someone comes to you and plants doubts, seeds of suspicion are being planted. Remember, that person is acting like an Abner in the body of Christ. And what he is doing or she is doing is warped and sinful. And then Paul says, he is self-condemned. He's saying that person as a pattern may be one of the most committed people in the church. But if this is their pattern, they may not even be saved. Remember that when you entertain accusations. Or when you're tempted to be that person. It's warped. It's sinful. And it's self-condemning. And where church discipline does not exist, and church discipline is not just at the official macro level. It happens one-on-one, where I call a brother out or a sister out for, for patterns or whatever it may be. Where church discipline does not exist, you may as well name that church Helkath Hazarim. The church of the field of hostilities. Just as we saw that name earlier in our passage. Seventh, it's often in the aftermath and only in the aftermath of the division and conflict that the true cost is counted in human terms. We see here at the very end of this passage, Abner lost 360. Needless, just absolutely needless. David only lost 19, 20 if you count his nephew. But even here, with only 20, 20 sons, 20 husbands, 20 brothers, 20 friends, spouses. Eighth, sinners, that's us. (laughs) We're not talking about a special class of people out there. Sinners are not wise and good are powerful enough to build a peaceful society. For one thing, we're impotent to change anything or change other people. We tend to be too selfish, self-absorbed, and suspicious of others. Reading people's motives as if you are a soothsayer. And it causes chaos. Chaos and pain, a lot of pain. Ninth, our only hope is the kingdom of God. It's the only hope we need, though, right? The Bible's message, and it's not in this text, but every text is is in some way preparing us for what we need, showing us what we need, right? This chapter is ugly. It is bad news through and through, but you, you can't appreciate and embrace the good news until the, the, the bad news has really hit you between the eyes. The Bible's message is that God has promised and he has provided a king who will succeed 
in bringing about true reconciliation and peace. But like David, not the kind we'd expect. You know, it's interesting that the, this chapter ends with a burial in Bethlehem. They buried Azahel in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. That's all we can produce. Carnal means, that's what it produces. Death. Burial in Bethlehem. But the Bible doesn't leave us there in hopelessness and in death with a burial. A few hundred years later in Micah, the prophet says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, who would have picked Bethlehem? From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Verse 5. And he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. Bethlehem. Yes, the kingdom of God would indeed come in a completely different way from the carnal strategies of Abner and Joab and the Abners and the Joabs of this world. Indeed, Bethlehem represents God's upside-down way of establishing His kingdom. Even the prophet Micah seems shocked as he writes the words. You who are too little to even be considered among the clans of Judah. Did I hear you right, Lord? It's almost like what he's saying. In a thousand years after the chaos of 2 Samuel chapter 2 and we'll see chapter 3, instead of a burial in Bethlehem, we have a birth. And this king would be better than David. In God's upside-down way, and Bethlehem represents everything that's upside-down about God's ways. And guess what? If God's ways are upside-down, we're the ones that are turned wrongly. It would take a cross. It would take a resurrection to reverse the alienation that we're all subject to. Because what's natural to us is what we see in Abner. What's natural to us is what we see in Joab and Azahel. And this is why we pray your kingdom come. Precisely because we're not good enough. We're not wise enough. We're not powerful enough to bring about a peaceable kingdom. I think that may be the point of the chaos we see in our churches. We need one greater. And it's only when he establishes his kingdom will we know the peace for which our hearts are, trans are, are hardwired for and long for. 
and by which we serve as a light to the nations. I think it's what Paul had in mind in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God in Christ was reconciling the world by not holding our trespasses against us. And he has committed to us that very word of reconciliation. That's our mission. The word of reconciliation. He himself came as our peace. The alienation is two-sided. Keep that in mind. The alienation between God and man is two-sided. And when we are alienated from God, we're going to be alienated from each other because of self-love. The alienation is two-sided. Our rebellion against the reign of God and His wrath, His good and just wrath on our rebellion, on our sin, on our wickedness, on our depravity. Christ comes and He takes the wrath and the Spirit of God applies His work of redemption to our hearts so that for the first time our hearts are gloriously warmed to God, our reconciler. And our rebellion is reversed to submission. And one of the evidences that that rebellion has been reversed is horizontal peace. And when the peace isn't there, it bears false witness to an accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray for peace at Fisherville. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We know your Son is the Prince of Peace. It's what our hearts need. It's what our hearts long for. And it's what our church must communicate if we're to be a light to a lost and alienated world. That peace has come. And by your Spirit, may we appropriate it for your renown. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never experienced that peace, by repenting of sin that destroys peace, destroys it, and submitting to the rule of King Jesus, may be today be the day that new sinners enter the kingdom of Christ by regeneration and repentance and faith. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. Let's stand.